Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hello everyone and welcome again to the 2022 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Emily Bridges, and I am a first-year MBA student here at Sloan. It is my pleasure to introduce the reformation of the NCAA, the impact of new legislation, realignment, and the NIL. Our panelists today are Val Ackerman, the commissioner of the Big East, Elizabeth Lindsay, the president of Brands and Properties at Wasserman, and Amy Prevet perko the CEO of the Knight Commission. Our panel will be moderated by Michelle Steele of ESPN. The panel will run for 45 minutes, and we will leave 10 minutes at the end for questions. Please submit your questions on Twitter using the hashtag TheNewNCII. Questions will then be selected by the moderator. With that, I'll turn it over to Michelle. Yeah, get your questions in, everybody. It is so nice to see a group of people that are not in my basement. Like, I, I'm so happy to be let out of the house. Like, this is great. Sloan back in person. How about it? Well, these people come to my basement all the time. <laughs> all right. So we are talking today about the future of college sports. And as we know, it is an established business, a very established business. Um, I checked for the last pre-pandemic numbers. $18.9 billion in revenue for the year just prior to COVID with the lion's share of that money coming from D1 basketball and football, as you can imagine. But what's so exciting about this panel is that I feel like it's so rare that we get to talk about uh, a landscape that is as established as college sports that's changing as much as college sports and potentially in some really fundamental ways coming up. Uh, 2021, obviously, 2020, obviously, COVID year, 2022, a ton of change that we're going to discuss this morning to briefly outline what we're going to talk about. Name, image, and likeness is essentially ubiquitous now, which was not true a year ago, uh, resulting in our first recruiting cycle where NAL played a not insignificant part in some players' decisions on where to go. The NCAA is actually looking at, they're, they're going to review where certain players are transferring and seeing whether NIL played a part in that. Uh, we've got two college football blue bloods in Texas and OU going to the SEC. That's something that you don't see every day. Conference realignment dominoes we'll be discussing. Oh, and by the way, the one thing that everybody thought was impossible looks like, I don't want to say inevitable, but it's, it, it's, you know, it's out there, which is how long before student athletes are classified as employees. We have uh, charges that have been filed with the National Labor Relations Board against USC, UCLA, and the Pac-12 seeking that exact outcome. So a year from now, maybe this panel is talking about even more significant changes to the college sports landscape. So. Let's dive in here with NIL. Um, it's, it's going to be a busy morning. It's going to be a busy year uh, for college sports. Val, I want to start with you because you're a conference commissioner with the Big East. 
We're nine months into this thing, right? Uh, you were on that first committee at the NCAA that really examined this issue. How do you think the rollout of name, image, and likeness has gone? Uh, thanks, Michelle. Great to be with uh, Amy and Elizabeth here. Um, well, frankly, without uh, a national standard, um, what's happening is pretty much what everybody expected, to be honest. I mean, um, as you noted, uh, I co-chaired with Gene Smith, the uh, AD at Ohio State, the first of two NCA working groups that examined NIL, um, really thought deeply about um, wh why we should do it, and that was the conclusion of our group in 2020. But then importantly, how to do it within the college space, which is very unique from the pro sports world, in large part because of how um, student athletes make their way to their programs through uh, initial eligibility recruiting and then through the transfer um, possibilities. So we really wrestled with questions around um, disclosure and how to deal with conflicts with school sponsors, what was the appropriate level of institutional involvement, could institutional marks be, be used in these endeavors, um, how to handle this in a recruiting booster environment and so on. So we, we, you know, we gave a lot of thought to it, we agreed we should do it, and that was the recommendation to the Board of Governors at that time, um, but we really felt strongly we needed a national rule and so uh, there were attempts to do that that failed largely because of legal concerns. And then, of course, last July, when a number of state bills that would authorize NIL were due to go into effect, um, you know, the plea to Congress, if you will, to step in, preempt the states, and come up with this national standard didn't, didn't really work either. So now we are left with a uh, really a morass of different uh, rules, depending on what state you're in and states that don't have a law. It's what the school agrees to through very loose uh, NCA parameters around uh, pay for play and recruiting. So uh, the, the answer is I think for student athletes, this, this will be the bonanza that everybody uh, yeah. wanted, um, had hoped for. It won't be just football players and men's basketball players. We're already seeing evidence of uh, women's athletes, Olympic sport athletes making out appropriately so. Um, but there are, you know, there are some questions now around um, you know, what, what should the boundaries be on this to maintain principles that are core to college athletics? And so I think to your point about the uncertainty in the environment right now, that's really the question that we'll see, you know, if it gets resolved or not, not in the coming months or years, is whether that national standard that would allow for some level of fairness and consistency uh, can, can be made to happen. I mean, that's the amazing thing, right, is a year ago, we saw that first sort of um, group of states who started to put out legislation. It felt like at some point it was, it was a race. You know, California was sort of out of the gate first, and then Florida came out with their own law and said, you know, we're going to enact this even sooner than California. And then before you know it, every S it seemed like every SEC state essentially was putting out their own legislation to make sure that their programs were in the best recruiting position possible. Now we've got Alabama repealing that legislation because they, they, you know, they feel like the bonanza is better than, you know, having rules in effect. So where do we, like, realistically, where do we land on this? You know, what's the likelihood of some kind of federal action here? Well, you know, I, th I think the future is going to be determined as well by where the NCAA decides it's going to be in the future. Uh, Division one is currently right, going I, through. I just a, assume the NCAA is sort of 
punting a little bit on this. Well, they they are punting. I get one one point, um, and Val, this kind of will resurface your days of working with the NBA, but. The, the NCA policy that's in place says NIL cannot be used as recruiting inducement. I mean, that's its policy, but there's no enforcement of it. And um, just, you know, as an analogy with free agency and pro sports, you know, professional teams can't offer endorsements to pro players because it violates salary cap issues. So, so in essence, we have a college sports system that has less control and, and, and less enforcement of its own rule than what you have in pro sports as it relates to endorsements. And, um, you know, that, it's an issue that the, the Division I um, kind of task force or, or working group that's, that's looking at what is its future has been asked by the board to look at NIL and, and you know, how it should be enforced, what are the implications of what's happening now. So. You know, it's our hope, and, and I represent the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, where, for those who don't know, we're a thought leadership group. Our members include presidents, former presidents, and, and our goal is to lead transformational change that really emphasizes the athlete, fairness to the athlete, their education, their health and safety. And we benefit from great thought leaders like Val is a former member. And uh, just a little history on the NIL, uh, Val, you may recall one of our one of the very first national meetings on NIL was in 2008, and and we brought in athletes and and attorneys and experts to talk about what was then emerging technologies with video games using college athletes as uh, you know the the avatar, and um, and I can remember at that time. Uh, you know, some, some presidents and other leaders were kind of like, that seems like a really trivial issue, uh, the name image likeness. Why, why are you guys really concerned about that? You know, fast forward to where we are today and social media and social media influencers really changed the game on, on this whole uh, topic, I think. So I think it's a big question about what's, what's going to happen, but I think we are gonna have to have some boundaries of yeah. how, how NIL is managed moving forward. What are the repercussions of not having a federal rule? Well, I mean, to Amy's point here, she's absolutely right. There's a macro issue here, which is the, um, the legal limits of the NCA's rules-making authority. Mm -hmm. And the NCA had one vision of that before the Alston decision mm -hmm. back in June, which sort of changed the game. Um, what had been this sense that the NCA had ample latitude to regulate co college sports got, um, got derailed, frankly, by the majority opinion in Austin. And so that created the skittishness and the hesitancy about creating this national framework, Michelle. And so it's, and we were talking earlier, it's so unusual to have this, this enterprise which has a history of being sort of two rules oriented. Mm -hmm. And now there's this nervousness about coming up with a structure that could be subject to future legal challenge. Um, and so, you know, it may, it may well be that, um, that, that it would take Congress at this point to, to intercede and to come up with um, sort of what I call like this box that would reconcile, okay, here's what's okay from an antitrust standpoint. You mentioned pay for play. Here's what's okay from a labor standpoint. And then, of course, we'll talk, I'm sure, in a few minutes about Title IX. How do you reconcile Title IX, you know, with this sort of a framework? And so. Well, you know, what we hear is that Congress is nowhere near sort of ruling on that. Um, I'm, Amy's very dialed into what, what, what's going on on the Hill there with an election year, uh, with other issues that are to the fore, 
Um, it's unlikely that Congress is going to be have the bandwidth to sort of think about, okay, what are we going to do with college sports? And frankly, I don't think anybody thinks that anything utterly chaotic has happened quite yet with NIL. You know, the sky hasn't fallen, no one's gotten mm -hmm. sued, athletes are making out, and so, you know, those who would be called upon to do something about it are probably saying, well, what's, what's the big deal? This doesn't seem like it's a mess. It may turn out to be a bigger mess, but it seems to be the perception right now. It's a patchwork, but it's not a mess for now. Uh, you know, I want to talk about the bonanza here and sort of the size of the market. Mm -hmm. and Elizabeth, I want to bring you into this conversation as well. We're seeing some big deals mm -hmm. uh, at the top end of this market. I mean, I think $50,000 is a, is a big deal. And Texas essentially gave that to their offensive linemen. Um, now, those are for charitable purposes. Um, you also see we went through our first uh, recruiting cycle where NIL probably played an, an not insignificant role in whether where guys went. Mm -hmm. You know, for the first time, we had a five-star recruit go from an FBS school, Florida State, to Jackson State with um, talk, speculation, that there was a seven-figure deal attached to Travis Hunter. When, where do your thoughts go to when you hear those numbers? I mean, do you think this is a bonanza and this is a huge market opportunity? Well, look, we're at an analytics conference, so I'm quite certain everyone can look at a number uh, and can also recognize the numbers within a set that are the anomalies within that set. So there are anomalies. If you take away the bell curve top end and bottom end, the fat middle of this is really deal sizes that are under, depends on how you cut the data and how you look at it, but are demonstrably under 2, 3K That's for the each of these athletes. Hmm? That might be the median. Potentially. I hesitate until I see the full data set, but potentially. Um, so, it, you know, and absolutely, is it a bonanza of opportunity and potential? Yes. Have we fully realized that potential yet? No. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot to do with what these ladies were speaking about, the sort of Wild West nature of it. Um, and, you know, nothing's broken. Everybody I hear say that statement, Val, everybody adds yet on the end of it. Nothing's broken yet. It's, the sky's not falling yet. Mm -hmm. But I think that there is a, a, a clear consensus that, you know, which was driving the need or the ask on a, on a national level, there's a clear consensus that when you draw the lines very faintly, it's pretty easy to color outside of them. And you're starting to see a little of that come into this sort of morass of Wild West. There are some bad actors that are getting identified and taken to task and investigations that are happening. And while all that is going on, will it reach its full potential? Probably not. That's going to have to settle a little bit, but the potential is definitely there. Any place that you aggregate eyeballs and passion, there is potential. And I, you know, all of us in this room coming from a sports side can talk about the passion and the audiences that are behind college sports. They are definitely there. How do you determine? So I, I think seven figures mm -hmm. is not out of the question for a particularly prominent player. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot that could happen. There's a lot of guys on a college football team. Yep. Um, how, do you, how does uh, uh, a, an agency determine how much uh, 18-year-old is worth. So, you know, our philosophy, we are a very data-driven agency. We look at everything from the perspective of two key points of data, audience analytics and performance measurement, like front end and back end. Audience analytics, who's paying attention, and what is the potential to, you know, to quote my friends at Nike, sell more shoes if you properly um, 
uh, tap into that audience. So we would look at an athlete's potential in college no different than we would look at a, a partnership deal with a professional athlete or even a partnership deal with a professional sports team is what is the audience? Mm -hmm. Are you reaching the right audience? And at the end of the day, how influential is that particular partnership in moving your consumer from, from step one to step two to step three within the funnel to ultimately purchase an advocacy? The interesting thing about college sports is, is that we, when we work with brands who are trying to get into it, we spend a ton of time explaining this to them. The interesting thing with NIL is where I think people jumped a little quickly at the excitement and the potential and the promise, they, they missed that step one in audience analytics. More often than not, when you are doing a deal with a college athlete to try to reach and influence the student body on their campus or in their conference, if you really look at their reach and their audience through social and other channels, it's not fellow students as much as it is alumni and others who are followers of the school. Oh, and as okay. a result, you're going in thinking you're reaching one audience when in practical application you're reaching another. So from Wasserman's point of view, just because that you're entering a partnership with, say, a quarterback at Michigan or something, mm -hmm. you're not necessarily getting that student body. Not you're exclusive. getting a lot of Michigan uh, Alumni, essentially. Yeah, which may be a perfect thing. It may be perfectly good for your brand and your investment. I'm certainly not saying that's a bad thing. It's that keep it in perspective. You know, we, we spend a lot of work uh, on college campuses trying to influence the student body, working through our teams on campuses. And, you know, we tell people there are athletes that are influential, and there's also the Soul Cycle instructor at the rec center who has a massive social following, also influential. Understand your audience, understand who you're speaking to, tailor your messages accordingly, and that will lead you to the performance marketing. But when something's new and exciting, I think a few people jumped without doing that homework. Um, Val, are you, from a conference perspective, looking to regulate, or what kind of rules do you have in place as it relates to how these deals are structured so that students are protected, or is that on them? Uh, it's on them. Um, and, and in fact, that was noted often during our working group's deliberations was the, these kids are going to have to step up here and understand these are complex business transactions in some cases. They're going to be signing contracts. Uh, part of the framework we had worked up, which um, mirrored what many states were developing in their frameworks at the time, was that they were allowed to have advisors. Mm -hmm. We were trying to distinguish between advisors for NIL counseling versus agents. Um, who would be sort of marketing their services to pro sports leagues, which are still prohibited under NCA rules for other reasons. Um, but we were concerned that student athletes would get the help they needed, and so there has been a premium on education at the campus level. We still hear from student athletes. They're very interested in financial literacy. Some didn't know, hey, I got this is taxable income from a third party, and, and so there's filings associated with that. Even if it's VIK, there's ta it's taxable That's right. income. I've heard many say, well, I didn't get any money, they just gave me a free X. No, 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 that's still taxable income, correct? That's right, so we, you know, there have been a whole, you know, it's been an eye-opening process, I think, for these, you know, student athletes, and so yes, our schools are supposed to be, uh, and are, in our case, um, dealing with that. We don't have a conference policy, Michelle, in part, because we've got 11 jurisdictions in the Big East, and so we're dealing with, I think, uh, eight, of our, eight of our jurisdictions are in states that have an NIL law. All the NIL laws are different from state to state. They're not all the same. We have a couple of schools in states that don't have a law, and so they follow the interim NCA policy, which is all you got to do is make sure there's no recruiting inducement and no pay for play, sort of, you know, and then you can do whatever you want. 
And to your point earlier, states are now saying, hey, wait a minute. I have a regulated framework here, and we have other states that you can do whatever you want. So they're now sort of trying to reverse their laws. So they're more like the you know, low regulation states. So it's pretty incredible. But to, you know, I, I did want to make a, so we don't have a conference policy because of that reason. I did want to note, though, based on, uh, back to Mich uh, Elizabeth's comments about fair market value, our working group spent a lot of time on how to deal with things that are fair market value and things that aren't. Mm -hmm. Because we were really concerned about um, you know, a deal that was just way off kilter. You know, uh, a, a star quarterback somewhere making a 30-minute appearance and getting $2 million for that. I mean, but, but, and we actually had, and Amy knows this, talk about a so-called third-party administrator that would sort of centrally manage the data. There'd be a disclosure mechanism so that we could track as an enterprise what the deals were, not to stop them Yep. But to sort of see what was, you know, happening market to market, social media posting versus a old-fashioned endorsement deal or a, you know, public speaking appearance, just to get a better sense to inform like what could be real fair market value for everybody's benefit, and to distinguish importantly between what's a fair market value for this type of a service and what's a recruiting inducement. What's just a flat-out bribe to get a kid to come to your school or to stay at your school. And so that's where I think the tension is in the system right now, Elizabeth, is sort of like, what's a legitimate deal, fair market value versus something that's just out of whack and is clearly designed, uh, again, to influence a, a decision, so. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to pick up on that in terms of, you know, one of the principles that our group had put forward back April of 2020, so well before the, the state laws began to be passed, was to say there should be no institutional involvement. Now that's debatable, and, and now we're seeing institutions that are staffing up, and, and now it, the NCAA doesn't prohibit, the NCAA policy does not prohibit institutions from helping to arrange NIL deals. Right. Um, and so, but it does trigger the question, going back to Elizabeth, your point in terms of audience, and it opens, it triggers institutional involvement and trigger, triggers Title IX. Mm -hmm. so, are now institutions, do you look at institutions and say, well, you know, you have five NIL brand managers for football and one for your Olympic sports. You can't do that. And how much money is, are you as an institution putting into promoting football and men's basketball to drive audience, which we know impacts NIL deals? Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a big question and a, and a when institutions make that decision of we're going to be involved. And I think Ohio State made the decision we're going to be involved. So that's one big issue. Another one I wanted to pick up on is we may see a future. I mean, the future of college sports really is the question at some schools, is this going to become uh, no longer a co-curricular activity, but a commercial venture affiliated with the institution? Is it going to be structured that way for some sports? I think at others, we're going to see a doubling down on, we want this to be part of the educational mission. And so just looking at NIL, what a great education for young men and women to understand uh, taxable income, the entrepreneurial spirit that comes with um, you know, your, your brand and, and the opportunities there. What, some schools have done an excellent job already of creating some four credit courses in this area. So I think you're going to see, for those that really want to double down on this being part of the education, it should be. I mean, that's a 
MIT may have a class on that, I don't know. But, uh, or if not, I'm sure they will in, in a couple of years. But um, that's an example of, I think you will see kind of this big question of are we gonna double down and do things that you know, are legitimate making this part of the education mm. in the co-curricular or, or splitting off and making it more just commercial venture. Well, you, you, if I can jump yeah. in real quickly, you bring up Title IX, and there's one thing I want, I want to say about that and sort of equity for women's sports as mm -hmm. a result. We're talking about some of the challenges with NIL, and we're professionals. It's our job to solve these challenges. I get it. Mm -hmm. One of the more interesting upsides of NIL to me is the opportunity for women's sports at a college perspective. Like, I've been in this business 25 years. I'm looking around. This is the first panel I've ever been, in, been on in my life that is all women that's not talking about marketing to women. So there is this movement of women in sport out there that, thank God, is finally showing up on stages. And I think what you're seeing in the NIL space, by the way, correct, so only took 25 years. Um, <clears throat> what you're seeing in the NIL space is a really interesting opportunity for women. I don't know if any of you guys sat in on the Title IX panel before this one, but I was listening to Sue Bird, full disclosure, Wasserman athlete and you know general goat mm -hmm. uh, on all things. General goat. General goat. <laughs> She's the best. She's so awesome. But I was listening to Sue talk about how women athletes, thank you, you know, th thanks to um, social media, have had you know, and because of necessity, to your point, have had to find their own voice. They've had to tell their own stories because the media at 4% a clip are not covering them. So they've learned to find their voice on their, their performance on the pitch and their voice off the pitch. Or they've learned to tell their own story. One of the athletes we represent in NIL is Sedona, and she certainly found her voice in the NCAA tournament when she was raising the issues uh, of inequity between the men's and the women's locker rooms. So what's interesting to me, when you, when you look at the data of of who's most compelling and more interesting from NIL, it's people who have both, on-field performance and an off-field voice. And because out of necessity, the women have had to do that for themselves, they're very well prepared for this moment in time and are some of the first early movers of taking advantage of the opportunities in NIL. It is not going to be just men's basketball and football. You're seeing volleyball, you're seeing soccer, you're seeing swimming, mm -hmm. you're seeing the women's side of basketball. Um, and I think that's the one good thing, shining star moment that's coming out of that. Are you seeing that, Val, that NIL is making room, uh, so to speak, for traditionally less profitable sports? Oh, 100%. In fact, um, maybe a little known fact here, when we were doing our initial inquiry into um, sort of the application of NIL in the college space, what we learned was that the NCA for years had been quietly waiving the NIL rules mm -hmm. uh, for student athletes who had started their own businesses, mm -hmm. for example, very entrepreneurial, in, imagine in your dorm room and came up with some apparel line, um, or was sort of a master chef and sort of was doing a cooking show on the side. And the NCA was saying, for that sort of thing, good, you know, God bless you, mm -hmm. you can use your NIL to promote it. So these waivers have been happening anyway, um, and it was across the board. To your, to um, Elizabeth's point in your question was it wasn't just sort of men's basketball players or you know star football players at you know SEC schools it was across the board mm -hmm. and so Amy I do think I, I want to pick up your point about the importance of the educational nexus here mm -hmm. I mean we have all these big picture issues swirling around college sports right now between NIL and the transfer portal and recovery from COVID and now this transformation committee which is examining 
D1, who should be in it, what the substructure should be, et cetera, et cetera, how revenue should be shared, championship access. I mean, all this stuff's on the table right now. And, and sort of the, you know, the focus on the commercialism of college sports is it's warranted, but it shouldn't overshadow the fact that these programs, they're part of education. I mean, you know, we're all products of it, essentially. I mean, I, I wouldn't be where I am today if I wasn't a student athlete at the University of Virginia in the early years of Title IX. I mean, it made me who I am. And, and my sport was and remains a cost center. Most college sports are cost centers. They're not profit generators. Um, and so I think, you know, my hope is that as this inquiry unfolds and all these issues get sort of teed up and Congress gets involved or not, that what won't be lost, again, is that sort of nexus between, as you call it, the co-curricular nature of college sports, that we can hold on to that in some form or fashion. Because the reality is that's what college sports is, you know, writ large, really all about for most student athletes, all whatever, 500,000 of them. Mm -hmm. That's their lot. Mm -hmm. And if NIL can get them a few extra dollars, that's great, you know? Uh, but the whole package of the educational experience, getting your degree, graduating debt-free, not often talked about. You yep. talked about $18 billion in college sports. At least $3 billion of it is going back in the form of scholarships. Mm -hmm. And so people don't write about that enough. And that's, you know, for those of us who work in the business, that, that you know, that, I, I, we, I would sort of say on behalf of the enterprise, I, you know, I hope that point gets, gets made um, with the regularity with which it needs to be made. Are NIL rules uh, changing um, how schools approach scholarships at all? Or are the dollar figures still at a level that well, the money is, supposed, is coming from third parties. So right. the, the package, if you will, that's permissible from the school is the scholarship, the cost of attendance. Um, some student athletes get Pell Grants because of financial need. And then there's a whole host and growing list, frankly, of permissible benefits mm -hmm. that, that student athletes are allowed to receive by way of academic advising and um, you know, uh, medical, medical uh, treatments and, and the like here. Um, and now with the Alston decision, in fact, um, the Supreme Court has said educational benefits are now allowable in the form of sort of non-cash way, but also uh, there is a cash award that's now possible through Alston, which is about $6,000 per student based on criteria that the school or the conference can develop. So, you know, this, this has all been evolving as well over the last 10 years or so. Um, but as it relates to NIL, I don't, it's not going to change that equation much this, this, you know, legal, legal developments may change the equation, uh, but right now the NIL payments are technically supposed to come from outside parties. Um, I want to shift to another huge landscape, potentially landscape changing uh, subject here in college sports. On the other side of the country, we have the National Labor Relations Board um, having charges filed with them by the National College Players Association which wants to be a union, not a union, but would like to be a union, would like to uh, represent college athletes. I covered the story at Northwestern five years ago when they were trying to unionize that football team. And essentially, we have an unfair labor charge pertaining to U UCLA, USC, and the Pac-12 that really gets to the heart of whether college uh, student athletes should be treated as employees. And we have the general counsel of the NLRB writing a memo in September sort of opening the door for that. Um, she even said that the term student employee is, and I'm paraphrasing her, but she essentially saw it as a means of wage suppression. She doesn't want that to be used. She'd like them, like them to be referred to as players. 
what are the repercussions, and I'm sure they're, they're wide-ranging here, of classifying uh, student-athletes as employees? Well, I'll bring up a, a major one, and that is going back to the panel before this one is Title IX. And if, if this is an employee activity, not a co-curricular educational activity, does Title IX apply in the same way it currently does? I don't think we, we know the answer to that. I think big picture, it, it goes back to you know what Val just brought up. Um, what is it we want for the future of college sports in its model? Do we want an employee-based model where there's each individual sport has its union and they're collectively bargaining? Um, do we want a model where some sports are just you know commercial auxiliaries um, affiliated with the institution, or do we want this co-curricular activity? And our, our commission has offered, we, we did a deep dive on Division I and, and launched a major examination of Division I in 2019, citing that there's these commercial forces, there's a lot, so, so much, you know, it's stressing the system that there needed to be a transformation of Division I. And this is, you know, obviously well before NIL's uh, Supreme Court decision in Austin. And we've offered a couple different solutions, and I just want to give a big picture outline of those because, again, our point is, you know, one is let's deal with the elephant in the room, which is FBS football is an enormous commercial activity. And in our view, it should not be governed in the same way that we're governing um, men's and women's soccer, as an example. Um, and one of the most misunderstood facts about college sports is everyone thinks the NCAA controls everything, the NCAA controls the college football playoff. The NCAA has nothing to do with the college football playoff. The NCAA makes zero in revenue from FBS football. Um, the NCAA's money comes from March Madness. And so for, for our uh, organization, we proposed uh, one solution is let's create a new separate entity to govern FBS football. And for the first time ever, let's couple the Revenue Administration Authority with the Rules Administration Authority. That would be uh, allow for unique solutions to deal with the future of, of football. And, and it's, it would be better, in our view, for football athletes. Let's put football athletes on the governing board. Right now, you've got the college football playoff generates $500 million annually. If it expands to 12 teams, it could be, generate 1.5 billion annually, and there's no athlete on that board. Um, so let's just start with that solution. Another solution is, uh, Val talked about the $3 billion annually given in, in scholarship uh, money for this educational activity. Um, let's talk about, or for, for education through sports for these athletes, another $3 billion number annually is the shared athletic revenues, the amount of money generated from March Madness, the college football playoff, and then the, the conferences themselves with their TV network. So all of those collective activities generate more than $3 billion annually. And so our proposal is there needs to be a new financial framework for Division I that connects those shared athletic revenues to this educational mission so that those revenues are used to advance the education, health, and safety and are not used disproportionately on coaches' salaries and facilities. 
And, and the data show, and, and we have the data, you can find it on our database, Knight Newhouse College Athletics Database. And if you run the, the programs over the past, you know, over the past 15 years, the, the new revenues that have come into the system have flowed disproportionately to salaries and facilities. And, and that's, the, that's the issue that is driving mm -hmm. opinions like the NLRB, it's driving Senator Booker and Blumenthal to come up with their own solutions. It's driving state lawmakers to come up with their own solutions. And that's why we need college sports leaders to, to deal with you know, the realities of, of what's happening with the structure itself. Is the prospect of student athletes essentially being classified as employees, is that something that conference commissioners have on their radar at this, at this oh, point? Oh, yeah, no, 100%, but uh, you know, to the extent we can control it, um, it's a different story. Right. I mean, as you, you noted, the NLRB cases, there's actually another case that was filed back in the fall in Indiana, I believe, uh, by a, a group that was calling itself the College Basketball Players Association, um, was sort of right out of the gate after the uh, general NLRB general counsel's guidance came out. So, so that was, she, she gave the invitation and it's been acted on. There's also a case right now in the Third Circuit um, sort of hits home with our league because it's been filed, lead plaintiff is a former football player, Villanova, who's arguing that student athletes should be uh, eligible for a minimum wage under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Those cases have been filed before and have been defeated at the lower courts. This case is progressing. Um, you know, Amy noted some of these, um, I, I would say more aggressive congressional bills that speak to revenue sharing models, with no detail, by the way. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of broad concepts here so nobody that we know of has actually sketched out, okay, well, what do you mean and how much and, and haven't you know, worked in the pro leagues, I can tell you those are very complicated mm -hmm. discussions between a league and a players association is what's in the revenue pot, what gets taken out for you know, cost of doing business, mm -hmm. how does it get shared, and it's, you know, these are, um, again, very, you know, very sophisticated negotiations. You know, I, I don't, I'm not aware of sort of that sort of modeling right now that's going on. Do I think it would be a good idea? I do. Because I think the pressures have been brought to bear here. There's probably, there is a new model lurking in college sports. Um, well, you know, again, back to an earlier comment I made, the, the sort of challenge here is that, um, you know, the focus on that I think has been directed to a, 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 you know, a sort of a small but very high-end, commercially speaking, group of athletes in FBS football and maybe big time college basketball, mm. but it doesn't reflect the economic realities um, of most other sports. Um, th the last thing I'll say on employment status is it does open the door to a whole host of complications around the taxability of the income. Mm -hmm. If you're getting paid a salary now, do you still get the scholarship or do you have to pay the scholarship out of the income? Does the scholarship now get taxed because the salary, you know, mm -hmm. triggers a tax classification? Um, you know, unionization, Amy mentioned, are these now, are we into overtime, termination? There's a whole host of, um, uh, you know, issues that surround this, and I, I'm not aware of anybody that's really kind of thought through that, and I hope that the NCA isn't reactive to that, and there can be so, some proactivity to come up with a model that would be digestible, workable, and that ultimately that could be, you know, blessed from a litigation standpoint, because that is the fear right now, that anything that is sort of devised may not have the litigation protection needed, so it may not be good enough for the next group of plaintiffs to come along. So that's where you have to work hand in hand, I think, with Congress. 
that JD is coming in handy with uh, <laughs> the issues and for the Big East and college sports in general. I mean, to think about an environment where student athletes could be striking, right? Or collectively bargaining. Um, we're seeing baseball go through the, the challenges of that right now, but it's interesting that it's, it is on the radar. You know, it, maybe it's not the most likely possibility, but it's a possibility. Um, the one thing I don't want us to lose in this entire conversation, yeah. we're talking a lot about employment law, which as a marketer is quickly where I get over my skis, but employment law and collective bargaining and unionization and legislation and da -da -da -da. at the end of the day, these are college kids. They're kids. And they have a, a job to be a full-time student, a job to be a full-time athlete. Now we're asking them to be full-time business owners and brand builders and entrepreneurs. And at the end of the day, they're college kids. And so as we're having all of these, these conversations, and I, the one that was most interesting to me was when we were talking about the educational opportunities for these people who then will have to go on and do this in their, you know, some of them professional sporting careers and some of them in business careers. Um, in all this machination of following the revenue back and forth and the laws that are around it and employment implications, the one thing that I hope all of us remember that at the core of these are a bunch of students who've been given an opportunity on, in our world and our job is to protect them. And all of this should be And Elizabeth, that. I mean, not lost either on, you know, sort of the, the adults in the room are, that, that, that all that stuff takes time. I mean, there was a big conversation around time demands before NIL. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know how much time you have to devote to your sport. Often sports are year-round because of conditioning in the off-season and the like. You got to go to class. You want to have a you know maintain your good academic standing. And NIL is a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And we noted that in our working group was, gosh, you know this may be a it may be a sort of you may self-select in because they're going to realize in short order there's a quid pro quo. You're not just going to get a check cut by somebody. You actually have to do work in order to take advantage of these opportunities. Build your audiences to market your channels. Yeah, yeah. all that. Yeah, lawyers, accountants, agents, list goes on. Um, we're getting up against the Q&A portion of the panel. So if you have your questions, please send them in and we'll be reading them. Um, we'll be reading them off. Um, I believe there's a Twitter hashtag. Mm -hmm. Um, but I did want to touch on another major, major issue here affecting the college sports landscape, and that is realignment. Um, Val, I just saw you sigh a little bit. <laughs> but the Big, e the Big East knows this area well. Yeah. Um, what was your reaction? You know, I know, you, you know you're not connected to Texas or OU, the SEC and all that, but as a conference commissioner, what was your reaction when you saw them jump? Well, uh, you know, uh, sort of for us, it was sort of ironic because when that news broke last summer, um, and it was seismic, it really was for everybody in, Absolutely. in, in our world. Um, you know, the, the, the irony for me is the Big East of today rose up out of the ashes of realignment. I mean, I, I wasn't with the league, mm -hmm. but it was the Big East that was frankly decimated by the ACC. Sorry, mm -hmm. hey, sorry, mm -hmm. a, a conference all of us have a tie to when so many schools um, left the old Big East and went mostly to the ACC, Rutgers, Linden, and Big Ten because of football aspirations. And so the group of schools I'm with were the, basically the basketball schools who said, gosh, you know, we got to control our own destiny here. So they withdrew. They added a few other basketball schools and were able to keep the name and Fox Sports uh, was starting FS1 around the same time. So it was good timing to get a big TV deal. Um, 
but so that was the irony for me is um, now our league, I mean, I, I, you know, we're, we're like really in good shape as a basketball-centric league with a very stable composition right now. We added UConn um, a couple of years ago, which has been, they were sort of out of the box in terms of the type of school they are compared to the private schools we, you know, we had. But, but nonetheless, um, a lot of points of commonality there, so it's worked really well particularly when it relates to the topic of basketball. So, I mean, for us, Michelle, we're, you yeah. know, we're just kind of observing this, but, but there has been an extraordinary domino effect. I mean, that one move has yeah. now occasioned, I don't know how many, probably 20 other moves now at all levels of college sports and has, um, has also resulted in sort of backfilling for conferences that have lost schools. They, you know, they want to sort of hold serve in terms of the number of schools in their leagues. So in some cases, they're bringing up D2 schools who they'll have reclassified to D1 in order to sort of you know, meet the requirements there of D1 membership. So uh, I, you know, this is all very much happening. Um, this transformation committee review that's underway is taking into account these moves. And um, you know, I'm frankly surprised there hasn't been a bit of a moratorium on that so far, but that, that wasn't sort of the desire of the group. Um, but where it leads, I, I don't think any, anyone knows, but I think it's probably a fact that it's going to continue, at least for the near term. Yeah, Can I bring up a point just with that? Because yeah. in the big picture, again, the Texas-Oklahoma move happened because of big-time football and how that enhances the SEC contract. And the last great realignment, if you will, was in 2010 when, when again, the major conferences were trying to figure out what's the best TV footprint for big-time football. And that, that led to uh, literally $2 billion in new revenues for those big-time conferences because they were able to negotiate substantial contracts and they're getting substantial money from their network. The big question, though, is then how does that impact all these other sports and these opportunities? And, um, you know, there are conferences um, where, where it, you look at the geographic footprint of all their other sports and it makes no sense. It makes no sense for the athlete experience, the amount of flights, uh, you know, UNC Charlotte and, and um, Appalachian State are 90 miles apart in North Carolina. I heard the story that their softball teams ended up at the Charlotte airport uh, at the same time, both flew out to San Antonio, rented a van, one drove 90 minutes away from San Antonio, one the other direction away to play conference games those two schools are not in the same conference. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's all driven by, by football. So, and I've heard athletic directors say, you know, the one thing I would change if we could do it all over is, let's just have some football-affiliated conferences and then, uh, you know, have some affiliations for all the other sports that make sense for those sports. So, so again, it's that conversation of, are we gonna have a model where FBS football drives all these domino impacts that really don't need to happen that way and that really aren't in the best interest of those particular sports. Yeah, I mean, I went to a Big Ten school and I'm a big proponent of sort of geographic integrity, but I think that runs against uh, the headwinds, the television headwinds primarily of where you want schools. You know, the Big Ten has Rutgers in the Big mm -hmm. Ten now, Maryland in the Big Ten now, um, because those are attractive television markets, among other things. I think the interesting thing about the domino effect is that, you know, does, is Conference USA going to, ex like nine schools are trying to leave Conference USA essentially as a direct result of, you know, different conferences stealing schools or taking schools away um, after Texas and OU left the Big 12. 
Do you think, and this is the last question on this, and we, we need to get to audience Q&A, but Val, do you think that, you know, Conference USA is going hard line on this? You know, they do not, they want, there's three of those schools that are not adhering to the provisions of exiting the conference. They want out now. Conference USA put out the schedule, and they were like, Old Dominion, uh, Southern Miss, Marshall, you guys are on the schedule in 2022, whether you like it or not. So now they're in court. Uh, do, we, do you think we see more of these public spats? And, yeah, and is well, the Big East looking to expand? Yeah, well, it's possible. I mean, um, in defense of another conference here, there are documents and bylaws and contracts um, that are in place, I, I, I'm sure for every single conference, about um, the terms of exit. And, um, you know, I know, I know for example, using Big East again, I mean, when our schools exited the old Big East, that was a negotiation. They, you know, it's usually a certain amount of time needed for notice, and then there's an exit fee, and if you want to accelerate that notice period and get out more quickly, it's, a, it's a basically a financial negotiation. If you pay more, maybe you can get out more quickly. But these are contracts that are in effect, and there's bylaw provisions around this, and they, there's generally an expectation that they would be honored. So, um, you know, I think you're, you're right that there's the possibility of some more, uh, you know, sort of public displays of how those negotiations are going to unfold as, as this continues. Um, you know, one, one thing I will say, it's just my sense, if once a school decides to leave, that's often the end of it in terms of, you know, goodwill and their ability to be in conference meetings. And, yeah. and so... Road games get a lot more hot. Yeah, you know, they, it's probably getting out. Once you say you're gone, you know, you're thought to be gone. And so the sooner you can get out is probably desirable from all sides. But again, there's contracts in place on this kind of thing. And they have to be, in my judgment, have to be honored or negotiated out of. Um, okay, we've got a bunch of uh, Twitter Q&As, so it might have to be a lightning round here. Mm -hmm. um, football and basketball have dominated the conversation around NIL. However, other sports do not have the best pro league framework, and most athletes are able to stay four years and build their brand. Will companies realize this and start targeting those athletes, these athletes more? Will they start targeting athletes who stay all four years? You know, sports that yeah. are more likely, right? You know, I, the conversations I'm in with the brands who invest in college sports, and there are many, or the many who want to in, in, invest to reach college students on campuses, whether that's through sports or not through sports, is very little to do with structure and everything to do with individual and audience aggregation. So as the school remains strong, as the individual remains, keeps a voice, builds an audience, those are the conversations, whether that's for two years, three years, or four years. Um, we have a question here about a specific student. Donald DeLaHaye was a kicker at the University of Central Florida. This was a few years ago. He was stripped of his scholarship and college experience due to his rapidly growing YouTube channel. You know, when someone like, when that happened, will there be any compensation for those like him? You know, now that the rules are different, is there any way to sort of make good on the guys who well, there's, there's plaintiff the lawyers that would certainly make that claim, and in fact, that's the House case right now. There is a case um, that was filed in the Northern District of California that is looking for back NIL, so, you know, so to speak. Right. So that'll be up for the courts to decide whether to honor that. But, you know, I, yeah, I, I would say that that would be allowable now, um, and and that's uh, you know that's maybe that should be seen as a good thing that that was you know, maybe not specifically, but certainly those types of cases were a driver in the state laws that were cropping up around NIL and certainly the receptivity within, you know, the NCA about um, 
the, the benefits of having those sorts of arrangements going forward. And I think that, that uh, because it's a class and it only includes like the last four, four years, right. uh, oh. you know, just to bring up that one of the first athletes who ever really gave attention to this issue was Jeremy Bloom, who had to give up being a college athlete because he was accepting money right. through his endorsements as a skier, Olympic skier. Uh, how much do the recent changes affect college sports at a lower level than D1? Well, for sure, realignment. Well, I think, you know, the, um, the, the most recent, the NCAA adopted a new constitution in January, um, the, the, and, and it was to uh, set, have a new set of principles to then, you know, drive the future direction. Uh, is our position, the principles have never been the problem, it's just putting those principles into practice. And so that's what our solutions aim to do, is putting those principles into practice. But I would say in terms of um, one of the intentions and very direct of the Board of Governors was let's do no harm to Division II and three schools. I mean, Division II and three, you know, in terms of the number of athletes, are the majority um, of the athletes, um, you know, competing under that NCAA umbrella every year. Um, and so there, there was a, a direct intention of, let, you know, let's make sure there's no harm done to the operation of mm -hmm. Division II and III. Um, but in terms of what happens to the future of Division I and, and whether there will be subdivisions, you know, we're getting ready to have March Madness, and March Madness really is what holds the 351 schools together. That's the glue that holds uh, that division together, but whether in the future we'll see a Division 1A and a Division 1AA and kind of a breakout of who's eligible for March Madness, that's all being determined now. And the smaller, and the smaller conferences within D1 are going to have the same approach to do no harm that you mentioned for D2 and 3 because they're going to want to make sure that existing guarantees around revenue distribution, championships access, who gets to be on what committee are going to be held, held in place to the greatest extent possible. So, but we don't know. We'll know more yeah. in the coming months. Uh, last few are all NIL questions, and this is lightning round, definitely. How do you see NIL helping female athletes specifically? We touched on that a little bit, but they mentioned specifically Paige, Paige Buchers was the first college athlete to sign with Gatorade. Five years ago, we might have assumed that deal would go to a, a male football player, maybe. Why? Well, Why would we who asked this question? <laughs> Yeah. I go back to what I said earlier. I think out of necessity, unfortunately, women had, have had to find their own voice. And one of the things, like, look, we run a survey every single year we have for the last five years of college, college students, millions of them around the world. And one of the things that we're starting to see is in that, in that generation coming through is I value your off-field voice as much as I value your on-field performance. Mm. And out of necessity, women and women athletes all along have had to cultivate both. So in this moment in time, with both of those being valuable to the students, to the brands, to the industry, little competitive advantage there because we've already had to figure out how to do that. And I'll say in her case, because she plays in the Big East, um, she came into, the, into college basketball with, I think, a 700,000 Instagram following oh, yeah. coming in. And that's now grown, um, you know, because of her new platform here. And I would say television is also a driver here. Every single UConn women's basketball game is on national television. And so to, to your question about, you know, media Marketing coverage, it doesn't it. hurt 
when your right. sport is you know, nationally available. This is a question for Elizabeth, I think. How will a school's market size mm -hmm. impact NIL deals versus the strength of a school brand, right? And Alabama is in Tuscaloosa, very small market size. How does that sort of change the equation? It becomes a matter of the machine that goes behind it. The bigger the stage, the bigger the opportunity to be seen. The mm -hmm. more you're seen, the more you build your audience. That's always been, by the way, the single biggest problem with women's sports, only receiving 4% of the media coverage. How are you going to be any better and be something that people want to watch if no one gives you a stage on which to do it? So, yeah, by default, bigger the stage, the bigger the opportunity. Amy, one plausible future collegiate model would involve Power 5 schools governing football separately. Mm -hmm. If that occurs, how do non-FBS conferences ensure they maintain their relationships for the other sports? For the other sports? Well, again, the NCAA umbrella would then control every, every sport for which it has a championship. And, and so those, those relationships would, would not change. And in fact, you know, we, we, had, uh, we engaged uh, Winston Strong to do an analysis of that particular model uh, to make sure we're taking care of you know, the legal issues. And that's available on our website. But again, that's a model that's a viable model. It addresses a number of issues and still retains what the NCAA really is is an organization that, that uh, hosts championships for basketball and all the Olympic sports. Um, so it wouldn't, it, it, would, it would, in our model, we would reconfigure the governance um, so that you know, it's, it's based on the, the basketball structure as the glue that holds it together. And you wouldn't have, you know, for an example, a conference USA just because they're an FBS conference. They have more votes than the Big East currently. Um, and it really just doesn't make sense in terms of what the NCA is and how it's currently structured. So, I, you know, I think moving forward, there's going to be changes in the governance, regardless of whether they end up. We hope that they that they certainly take on kind of this big idea that that we think would address a number of issues. Uh, that's all the time we that's all the time we have allotted. Actually, we're hitting a zero right now. Uh, final buzzer, but I do want to give. Credit to Val Ackerman here because you have the, 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 the brightest light, the most interesting sort of COVID play, sports business play. You bought insurance that, that covered the Big East tournament for infectious disease. Yeah. So they yeah. were covered Genius. 2020 and 2021. So, you know, all you future sports business leaders out there, think of everything because yeah. everything yeah. is coming your way. Yep. That's all. That's all I got. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.